This morning we find ourselves in a study that we began last week that warns us about the dangers and the ways of false teachers. And we understand that the dangers of false teachers cannot be underestimated. In fact, throughout the New Testament, we are warned about those who will come into the church itself as wolves among sheep. But when it comes to false teachers, it can often be very challenging to address them, sometimes even to recognize them, to confront them, correct them, or simply to get them to stop. If you've ever tried, perhaps you can relate to this following popular story. And before I get into it, to help you understand better what is going on, it may be helpful to know that a seaman third class in the Navy is basically the entry-level rank. It is the very bottom. A captain, on the other hand, is quite high and literally 20 rankings above seaman third class. This story takes place on a Navy battleship. It is sailing through the night in rough, foggy seas when a blip occurs on their radar. There is something directly in its path. The ship's captain sends a radio signal that says this, We are on a collision course. Advise you to change course 10 degrees north. A response quickly crackles over the radio. Negative. We advise you to change course 10 degrees south. By this time, the captain of the battleship can physically see a light directly ahead of his ship. He's getting annoyed. He gets back on the radio and says, I am the captain of a Navy vessel. Change course 10 degrees north now. The reply, I'm a seaman third class. Advise that you change course 10 degrees south to avoid imminent collision. Now the captain, being who he is, having been in the Navy so long and knowing he is talking to someone who is just new to the armed forces, all but screams into the radio, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a battleship. Back comes a calm reply, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a lighthouse. Two men insisting that the other was wrong and needed to change course, but ultimately only one was right. On the surface, not everything is what it seems, especially when it comes to spiritual teaching in the church. And what matters is that one was a battleship and the other was a lighthouse, perhaps both trying to save all of them. But one was clearly wrong, despite how authoritative and powerful he was. You could say then, when it comes to spiritual teaching, it is not just what is said, but what is represented. Not just the truth that is represented, but how it is represented. In other words, when it comes to spiritual teaching in the church, what matters just as much as what is being said is the character of the one saying it. And that's what we will look at this morning in our passage as we continue addressing the dangers of false teaching. Paul does not address the teaching itself. He explains the character of the godly teacher and the character of the false teacher. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
we'll be looking at verses 5 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, as we look at part 2 of our series entitled, Warning, False Teachers. Follow along as I read from the NAS. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This morning, we will see two approaches to teaching the Bible. Two approaches to teaching the Bible, and these two general approaches will contrast for us the biblical teaching from the biblical teacher and the false teaching from the false teacher. Two approaches to teaching the Bible. The first is the character of the biblical teacher. You could say the character of the godly teacher. The character of the biblical teacher. I find this in verse 5, which I'll read for you again. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here, Paul explains how he teaches and in so doing instructs other believers how they are to teach. He starts with the word but to contrast the false teachers he has just described in verses 3 and 4 that we saw last week. Turn back and let's read that, verses, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4. He says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And then he says, but, and then speaks of our instruction in verse 5 to refer to himself as well as the other apostles and the other teachers who handle the word of God accurately. And as we unpack this, we look to the Lord with thanksgiving in that he chose and led men who taught faithfully in this way that we read about in the scriptures, but we also look to the Lord for help so that we would approach his word with the same attitude. And I say attitude because Paul does not contrast his teaching with that of the false teachers by explaining the content, but the mindset of the one who teaches. Now, the first thing that Paul mentions is also the primary aspect of all of the Christian life that God is concerned about, and that is love. He says the goal of our instruction is love. By using the word goal, Paul is telling us, that teaching, teaching the Bible, is never simply for the sake of teaching. In other words, teaching is not the goal. The goal is love. In other words, there is an intended or desired outcome. And that outcome happens to be that which God expects of his followers. It is not enough to just know. We must apply. We must love. Now, there is a lot that God expects of us. But all of it is summarized in the two greatest commandments. You know them. Matthew 22, verses 37 and 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Verse 39. Then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now in our passage this morning, 
the word love. There are several Greek words that are translated love and have different nuances. But the word love here is the same Greek word that Jesus uses in the greatest commandments. It is the word agape. You've heard that before. It is the infamous kind of love with which God loves us and with, with which we are in turn to love him and others. There are two main characteristics of agape love. First, it is unconditional. That is the most common description of agape love or biblical love. But the second is just as important, and it is volitional. What that means is that it is not to be love that exists only when you are loved back or when you get what you want, or even if the person you are to love, which according to Scripture is everyone, wants your love. It is unconditional. It is also volitional, meaning that it is a choice. You don't fall out of love. You choose to not love anymore. Now granted, there are some people in your lives, in all of our lives, that are easier to love than others, but it is not just a subjective emotion, as Hollywood would tell us. It is an intellectual decision to love. And since it is foundational to both our relationship to God and our relationship to man, it is a summary of all that God desires of us. Thus, he has given us his word, the Bible, to help us love, which in turn is the goal of any teaching or explanation of the Bible. To put it another way, neither I nor any other preacher today are to preach simply to explain or give facts. We are not to preach merely out of a sense of duty or obligation to the church. I don't just do it because it is my job. There is a goal, and this goal can only be achieved through the living word, to love more. I suppose that you can walk into any college or university sit in any class, and for some unrelated reason, listen to the professor, and based on what he has taught, grow in love for others because of what you just learned about American history or even math. But that is coincidental. There are some jumps you make that remind you of a certain person or a certain situation. Any academic endeavor in and of itself does not have the power to change lives so that those lives will align with God's will for us. But the Word of God does. The Word of God has the power to grow you in your agape love. And as we continue on in verse 5, we see that this love has a specific source. Three to be exact. Look at the verse. A pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What this means in the context of the character of the biblical teacher is that not only is the goal of his teaching to be love, but that love comes from these three things. It is to be assumed then that in addition to loving and desiring to grow others in love, the teacher has these three characteristics that serve as the sources of agape love and is teaching to instill this in those who hear as well. Let's take a look at each of these one by one. First up is a pure heart. A pure heart. The heart 
is the center of one's inner being and personality. This is not talking about your physical organ of the heart. This is where all desires, emotions, and intentions originate. Thus, the heart controls your actions. Quite simply, the heart is who you are. You may behave differently in front of different people, but ultimately what is in your heart defines your character. Not what people see, not what you want to project. It is authentically and genuinely who you are within yourself and before God. And it is the before God part of the whole equation that necessitates that the believer and especially those who teach God's word must have a pure heart. Just like with love, we can look to Disney and redefine what a pure heart is. Those with pure hearts do not whistle through the forest and have birds land on their shoulders. It's more than just being nice. Now, we need to understand that a pure heart is only possible for a believer who has been cleansed of their sin by the blood of Christ. That is very important. We start there. We can use that phrase. You've heard that phrase of unbelievers. Oh, they're so kind. They're so giving. They're pure in heart. But when we talk about it biblically, of course, this is only for someone who has had their heart cleansed by God. But... What Paul is referring to here when he uses this phrase is not merely referring to your objective standing before God. A pure heart is one that is cleansed because of a continual confession of sin, the action of the believer, that results in forgiveness. It is a heart that passionately and sincerely pursues holiness which results in a heart that is not stained by sin, nor is it self-seeking. When it comes to a heart that pursues the Lord, purity means that there are no wrong motives even in your service or especially in your service. It is a heart that is focused primarily on God because a pure heart can only exist out of a true fellowship with God. You must be walking actively with the Lord, not just saved, but actively pursuing holiness and repentance and obedience for purity of heart. Naturally, if there's no purity in a man's heart, he cannot exhibit, let alone radiate, Christian love. And remember, a pure heart is one of the sources of true love. Now, this is very helpful for us. Because to love the way God loves us, to love others as we love ourselves, is a very high calling, and I believe we all find it challenging. And so we all struggle with it. And here we are given a very good place to start to identify any barriers. Don't just say, I need to love more. Start looking at these three sources. Do you have a pure heart? Very practically, are you confessing your sins to the Lord? Do you even care that they are sins? Keeping in mind that sincere, unhypocritical confession doesn't mean just confessing, but confessing, then striving to change your ways in repentance. By the way, that's true of all prayer. You are a hypocrite if you pray for someone's salvation, but do nothing to try to witness to that person. It is aligning your heart with God's will. This is not to be a legalistic sort of confession where you just say the words, 
go into the booth and speak to another man, and then get a free pass to continue living your life as you did just a few minutes earlier. If you don't have a pure heart, you need to ask yourself, do you see sin for what it is? Disobedience. Yes, you are saved. No, nothing is going to change that. But are you pursuing holiness and obedience? Now, Paul goes on to mention a second source of love, and that is a good conscience. A good conscience. The conscience is an alarm system, a warning system. The conscience was created by God and put in man so that mankind could have the intellectual and moral ability to self-regulate. Now, we understand as believers we can't do it perfectly without God's help, but we have our consciences, which the Holy Spirit uses to help us regulate our own choices and morality. The word conscience refers to the faculty by which any individual self-judges his or her moral actions. It's often said that it is morality that separates man and beast. But that distinction is more appropriately found in the conscience, which is the part of us that distinguishes between that which is morally right and that which is morally wrong, and then presses us to choose the right and avoid the wrong. If we put it in the context of the heart, if the heart is the place where desires come from, then the conscience is what directs, evaluates, and controls the behaviors that are the manifestation of the heart's desires. Now we know from Romans 1 and other places in Scripture that all people, Christian or not, have a conscience. But throughout the New Testament, we are taught that the conscience of the believer is to be aligned with what the Bible says so that the self-judgment I just mentioned is based on Scripture. That's so important because our minds get cloudy. Our consciences are not foolproof. They can be directed and informed by the wrong things, and so we must make sure that our consciences are directed by Scripture and only Scripture, not feelings, yours or other people's, not worldly wisdom, not peer pressure, and definitely not Hollywood. And that's where the good in good conscience comes in. In our day and age, the word good can be quite subjective in how people use it. But here we understand that the word good is defined by God. It is an objective good. It is written in the pages of Scripture. It's right there in black and white. So the first thing this tells us is that the conscience is viewed from a biblical or theological perspective because good is defined by God. Now if we can summarize what is good in the Scriptures, it is that which is morally perfect. It in turn satisfies our souls. And we know that there is only one objective truth that is morally perfect, and it is the Word of God. And when defining the conscience as good, Paul is saying that love comes from someone who has no need to condemn himself because he is obeying the Lord and his life is conformed to his Word. You have no need to condemn yourself because you are obeying the Lord and your life is conformed to His Word. That includes 
those guilty feelings that cause depression or anxiety, you need to go back to God's Word and say, is that even sin that you feel guilty about? And if it is sin in the past that you have confessed and repented of, know that you are forgiven. You may still feel bad, but your conscience should be clear because God has forgiven you. Because we're talking about a good conscience in the eyes of God. That's tough. I know feelings are tough. And sometimes feelings are hard to get rid of. But what you need to start with is an intellectual recognition of what the Word of God says. This orientation toward Christ can only occur if the Christian understands his responsibility before God. Far too often, we are very uh, well-versed in what God says is his responsibility to us, but we forget about our responsibility to him. Now, the objective standard, the objective standard from the Bible of a good conscience must be developed Because as I mentioned earlier, the conscience can be confused. This very context tells us that false teaching dilutes the scriptures and lowers God's standards, which in turn affects your conscience. It affects your whole life, including what you consider good or bad. It is important to realize that this can flesh itself out in a couple of ways. On the one hand, the one extreme, you are very familiar with the idea of searing your conscience. We can silence or sear our conscience. You can turn off that alarm, and it's not like your alarm on your phone or on your alarm clock, if those still exist. It beeps the same volume tomorrow at the same time, regardless of if you ignore it today. But the conscience, the more you ignore it, the quieter and quieter the alarm goes off. That's searing your conscience. That's deadening your conscience. The alarm is no longer triggered. And then we continue to violate God's commands in greater and deeper fashion. We become desensitized to sin in our lives, which directly affects the usefulness of the conscience. But on the other hand, the other extreme we can bring in unbiblical standards so that our conscience is alarming us all the time, but for the wrong things. We feel guilty for things that are not wrong in the eyes of God. Our consciences do not prick us because we violate God's word, but because we offend someone or we hurt someone's feelings, oftentimes to the degree that the sensitivity to those feelings make us violate the word of God overlook sin in our lives or others' lives. And you can see how this is directly connected to love. One of the hardest aspects of love, practically speaking, is out of love we confront sin. People don't like to be confronted on sin. But if your conscience just says, oh, just let it go, they're going through a hard time, I don't want to make them feel bad, I don't want to make them sad, guess what? That's not love. Because you are being driven by feelings and emotions and status quo and a perceived desire to keep that relationship strong rather than what the Bible says is love, which is make them more like me, says God. And so when we delve into all this other stuff, which within reason can be good, but if it violates what you are supposed to do according to God, then your conscience has become twisted in a different way. 
conscience. Your conscience is then not informed. It is not directed by the objective word of God, but by the subjective whims and emotions of other people, and other people's happiness and comfort become your God. In other words, they become your God. But the very basis of a conscience is the fact that we are made in God's image. And through the conscience, God is known and his standards are present in us. Again, Romans 1 tells us this about the conscience in all men. We may admire someone as a good person for how sensitive and giving and kind they are. But the word good in good conscience is not about that. It is about being honest with yourself about your conduct in light of what you know God's word demands of you. In other words, a good conscience is based on knowing what is obedience and what is disobedience according to God. This is a a very important as a determiner of biblical love because we can so often think someone is loving because they have a conscience that aligns with political correctness or others' worldly happiness rather than the Scriptures. Yes, we are called to be kind and gracious and merciful. Yes, we want to be nice. Yes, we want to care for others emotionally. Yes, we want to avoid making waves in society, but not at the expense of Scripture, not at the expense of you living out the Scriptures. Do not confuse worldly happiness fulfilling a cultural status quo or the lack of enemies as having a good conscience. Finally, Paul tells us that a sincere faith is necessary for true love. This reminds me of what we saw last week in verse 4 in the sound doctrine as opposed to false teaching which furthers the administration of God which is by faith. Here we see that a sincere faith is necessary for biblical love. This is simply a sincere trust in God. A faith that is without hypocrisy. Sincere, that's exactly what sincere means in the Greek. It's a compound word. In other words, it's a word that is two words forced together, like because in English. And in the Greek, this word sincere is literally the words not and hypocrisy. It was a word used of actors who played a character on stage, a character that was not who they really were. And so you can see how that aligns with the word hypocrisy. When talking about our faith, a sincere faith is to be without pretense, without facade. We truly believe what we claim to believe and how we behave, especially in front of other people, on a Sunday morning at church is because it emanates from what we truly believe and not just what we know they believe and expect us to behave as. This is more than an intellectual agreement with theological truths or even a sense of duty to your Creator. Sincere faith is a genuine, authentic trust in God. In order to have this kind of faith, you must believe that He is real, And you must believe what he has revealed about himself to be true. This is not, this is more rather than just saving faith. This is faith that works itself out practically in all of our situations. 
We can only fully know what He has revealed about Himself if we have heard sound teaching and adhere to it, pursue it. And this really hits home when we are called to have a sincere faith in daily living, to trust in the attributes of God, such as His sovereignty, His goodness, His care, His sufficiency. Sincere faith means not doubting or being anxious, not looking elsewhere for comfort or provision, not taking things into your own hands, not neglecting the things of Christ's law. Sincere faith. So that's the character of the biblical teacher. As I mentioned last week, Timothy knows the truth. By this time, he has partnered with Paul for 15 years, been discipled and taught by the Apostle Paul. He's been entrusted to pastor the church in Ephesus and to deal with false teachers. All that to say, he knows his stuff. He has sound doctrine. But what is important here is that as a steward of God's truth, Timothy is not told what to teach, but what his motivation should be in his teaching. Yes, the doctrine itself is vitally important, but he knows that already. What Paul is reminding him and us is of the character of those who are godly teachers of the word. But what drives a teacher or preacher of God's word to continue doing that is ultimately a submissive response to the very doctrine that he is teaching. Without that, the teacher will be more tempted to follow and propagate any teaching that will pay the bills, that will put him in front, that will lead to a stroking of his ego. And that's exactly what the false teachers wanted. As we'll see in our next point, found in verses 6 and 7, the character of the false teacher. We're looking at two approaches to teaching the Bible. We've seen the character of the biblical or godly teacher, and now the character of the false teacher. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Now the some men that Paul refers to here are those same certain men that he referred to in verse 3, those who are teaching strange doctrines. It's not all the teachers. It's not just one teacher. We don't know specifically who, but there are certain or some men. And what they are doing primarily is described here as straying from these things. Stray is also a compound word in the Greek that is made up of the words not and mark. Mark as in target or goal. And it means to miss the mark, to miss the target, to fail, to deviate, to depart. The ESV and King James say swerve. The NIV says wandered away. And the reason this is happening among these false teachers is not just an innocent mistake or reasonable misunderstanding or confusion that we all have sometimes when reading the Scriptures. They are teaching false doctrine because they have not even tried to hit the target. They have chosen not to do the hard work and due diligence of being on the right path, the narrow path. In other words, the goal of love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith is not the goal that they have set before themselves. It is, in fact, the very love 
that very love rather, and its three sources that are the things that they are straying from, according to Paul. This straying, wandering, missing the mark correlates with the phrase teach strange doctrines we saw in verse 3. And as we saw last week, in order for something to be strange or different, there must be a standard or a norm from which they deviate or stray. And of course, that standard is the gospel and gospel teaching. Now look at the result of this. Some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. That's a powerful word, because all the time in the Christian life, we talk about Christians and the word fruit, fruit, fruit. Here, it's fruitless. First, the phrase turned aside, which means to turn or twist aside, simply turn away. In Paul's day, it was often used as a medical term, this is great, to refer to a dislocated bone. It's not where it should be. It's out of place. It's out of socket, out of joint. This word, turned aside, is used five times in the New Testament, four times in the pastoral epistles. Again, the three epistles that are written to pastors for pastoral instruction, them being 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. So the first time it's used is here, as we just saw. Turn ahead to chapter 5 in verses 14 and 15. We see this same phrase, which is one word in the Greek, 1 Timothy 5, 14 through 15, and you'll notice a pattern here. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Look at verse, uh, chapter 6, 1 Timothy, verse 20. O Timothy, Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding, that's turn aside there, worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Then 2 Timothy, the next book over, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. This is that famous uh, passage about accumulating teachers so that their ears will be tickled. On a side note, it's very important when we use this passage to understand it is not the false teachers that teach and then draw people in, according to this passage. It is people don't want the truth, and so they will find people who will teach them the untruth or half-truths. So as deceiving and manipulative and evil as it is, These mega churches that are teaching heresy, the reason they're so big is because they're teaching what people want to hear. You know this. That's what makes them so attractive. But that's not the point. Let's look at it. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and well, here it is, turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The one usage of this word outside the pastoral epistles is found in Hebrews, using the parts of the human body as an analogy to the church. The word is used in that medical sense I referenced. Just listen, Hebrews 12, 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, 
It's talking about Christians. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, there it is, but rather be healed. So what's the consistent pattern of all five uses of this same word in the New Testament? The consistent pattern is straying from the truth of God's word. Last week we talked about the endless possibilities of their pursuit of unbiblical genealogies with that word endless. Now once you deviate from biblical truth or fact, there is no end to how far you can go because there are no limits. The scripture limits how far we can go. But if you're going to go outside of those limits, there's no, there's no end. It can go as far as you want. If someone, a, a, a dog escapes from a cage, there's no limit where he can go. Anywhere in the neighborhood. That's the same, not the same idea. We're not dogs in a cage. But you see, see my point, okay? So, you are limited. Really, if you're going to deviate from biblical truth or fact, you're limited only by your imagination or the imaginations of the false teachers you can listen to. And none of that is helpful or good. And we find a similar idea here. When these men stray from these things, they turn aside to the phrase Paul uses here, look at the verse, fruitless discussion. This would include vain or useless talk, idle chatter, empty arguments, There's a lot of conversations we have that have no spiritual value. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is fruitless discussion regarding what they think is proper theology. It can be translated foolish talk or even senseless babble. Not for its theological accuracy, but just because of the poetic and kind of fun nature of it. My favorite is the King James, which says, They have turned aside into vain jangling. By the way, all the arguments in terms of all of the ancient texts and all those, there's a lot of deep arguments regarding the King James. There's King James only people. There's one very practical argument against the King James is that it's simply using words like jangling that no one uses today. It doesn't resonate. It It doesn't make sense to the modern English reader. Back to our text. This occurs six times in the New Testament. It's again one Greek word, and it speaks of the senselessness of heretical teaching or human logic as compared to the Word of God, which is described as living and active. You know the, phrase, uh, the passage, rather, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, with that sort of instrument in your lap and on your phone, why would you go anywhere else? In battle, in the battle of life against temptations and sin and our growing evil society, you're going to say, I have this powerful two-edged sword that can cut through the division of spirit and soul, but give me the dull knife of watered-down theology and seeker-sensitive business tactics of the local church. Why would you do that? You see, the Scriptures are not just one of many documents with varying degrees of usefulness or futility. The Scriptures are the source of truth and life 
which makes any deviation from it completely fruitless, inane, and frankly, stupid. And if false teaching is fruitless, then any discussion of it will be fruitless as well. Back to our text. In verse 7, Paul goes on to explain the character of false teachers. The fact that they want to be, quote, teachers of the law is very telling and shows us how their desires contradict the love, the self-sacrificial love of the biblical teacher. Because the law here refers to the Mosaic law. We know this from the context as well as the other uses of the phrase teachers of the law in the New Testament, all referring to teachers of the Mosaic Old Testament law. This is, of course, a term from Judaism, teachers of the law, and shows that these false teachers are seeking the power and prestige that rabbis have grown to have in the Jewish world by the time Paul is writing this letter. What we understand and know is that there is nothing wrong with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very important to the New Testament and the New Testament believer, which is us. But these people are clearly teaching them incorrectly, as we saw in part last week. In fact, if they taught it correctly, they would teach it in a way that corresponds and supports what Paul and Timothy are teaching. But they have evidently missed the point of God's Word in the Old Testament such that they are using parts of God's Word but in a heretical fashion as they still do today and as many Christian cults do as well. Again, reminding us of the strange doctrines and straying that refers to deviating from the standard of truth even if their false teaching references verses in the truth. But there's more. Not only are the heretics teaching the Old Testament incorrectly, Paul says they do not even know what they are saying. The verse says they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This may be in part due to the fact that what they are teaching is wrong. But Paul also seems to be saying that even what they are speaking confidently does not make sense in their own minds. Of course, they're making it up. They're combining all kinds of worldly and biblical teachings, so of course it's confusing. They're not sure. Now, we have all encountered individuals, perhaps especially at work, who speak with great confidence, but we find out one way or another have no idea what they're talking about. When pressed on their confident assertions, They cannot explain or justify their thoughts because ultimately they don't even understand themselves what is coming out of their mouths. Now this can be for a number of reasons in this context. But the one we find in those Paul is condemning is speaking or parroting others for the sake of coming across as an authority that is to be respected. In other words... The false teacher's ultimate motivation is self. Compared to the agape love of true teachers, what we see is that rather than trying to love others or to help others love, they are only loving themselves. And we are again reminded of the character of the teacher and not so much the content, because the content will flow out of the character. Now that begs the question, Can someone be a teacher of biblical truth 
and have the wrong character and motivation? Absolutely. But therein lies the danger. If it's just to serve themselves so that they have authority or look good in front of others, there is a greater temptation to capitulate on what they teach or at the very least, the refusal to say, I don't know, when someone asks a question, to speak and give an answer confidently because they're more concerned about their reputation than the spiritual maturity and the integrity of the Word of God of those that they are listening to and of God's glory. So, in turn, even often people who teach the Bible will make confident assertions about things that they don't understand. That is very dangerous. But that's an aside. Whom Paul is addressing are the clear false teachers in the church. Although the warnings about character should be heeded by even the most solid of Christians and Christian teachers. And so very generally, you have two approaches to teaching the Bible. The character of the biblical teacher and the character of the false teacher. You see, the captain of the battleship, he has authority. He has power. He speaks loudly. He's very convincing. If I was in a smaller ship, undoubtedly just those words, I am a battleship, would get me shaking in my boots. And he may be right and authoritative in every other aspect of his life and work. Whereas the relatively powerless seaman third class, this new recruit, he's a nobody. He's nothing. But he represented a lighthouse. He was doing his job, which was to protect the ship, even if and when the ship refused to listen. As Christians, you may feel weak and powerless compared to the world or even the false teachers who have audiences of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. But that's beside the point. The point is what we represent, and what we represent is a who. The immovable, true, and trustworthy, life-saving lighthouse. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you go beyond what our earthly logic would do, which is to go beyond what is being said, but to the character of the man. Father, we, I pray that those of us in this congregation would have the discernment and wisdom and the love for your word, that we would guard the truth, that we would know enough when the wolves come or even when the sheep stray, that we would stand fast with grace, with kindness, with love, with mercy, but we would stand fast and correct and, if necessary, confront the false teachers or those who are headed in that direction. So many in our country, in our world, are deceived by these men. We pray first and foremost that your truth would be revealed to these men and to their followers. 
We pray for a great wave of repentance among the heretics and false teachers in our world. And we pray for enlightenment and your Holy Spirit to convict and show those who are enslaved to these heresies the truth and the simplicity of the saving gospel. Use us as a church to be salt and light, representing the greatest light, the lighthouse, that we may be the vessels by which you use to share your truth that doesn't debate, that doesn't argue, but saves the souls of men. Help us to this end, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.